Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's me, that Mr. Christopher, and um, I've had a really bad day. Uh, I'm not going to lie. This is the second time I've recorded the introductions and the uh, the outros um, for today's episode um, or, or for this week's episode. But it's I'm doing intros and outros for a different guest. Um, you were supposed to be listening to uh, me and having a conversation with a guy called Matt today and um, I recorded the conversation with him a couple of days ago and then this morning I sat down to record the intros and the outros and having recorded the intros and the outros I then managed to delete the actual interview so uh, I've spent the entire day from 10am this morning to half past six this evening trying to recover that file and I've not been able to do it so I'm really upset. I'm really, really disappointed because it was um, it was it was one of the best ones I've done. It was a really lovely conversation that I had with uh, with Matt, and um, I phoned him up to apologise and and to tell him how disappointed I am in myself. And he, he's very understanding and said he'll come back and we'll have that conversation again. So I now find myself having to record intros and outros for an episode that was supposed to come to you in a couple of weeks, but I've moved it forward to today because we haven't got Matt's one. So this week we've got a guy called Jose Suto. And uh, Jose is he's a professional chef uh, a professional educator he's a is a chef lecturer and uh, he's also a deer stalker uh, he's a professional deer stalker so um, I, I'm into deer stalking um, I think if you're going to eat meat you should you should know where it comes from and uh, and deer venison meat is uh, is one of the most sustainable meats out there and I thought it'd be quite nice to to record an episode we have a lot of normal conversations sometimes they're people i know of sometimes they're with complete strangers and i thought it'd be really nice to to have a conversation maybe with someone that as as something to to maybe educate someone on and it's a controversial subject i'm i'm well aware of that and you can you can tweet me you can email me um support for the episode as much as you can email me and tweet me your disgust for how barbaric it is if by the end of the episode we haven't managed to convince you otherwise um i think it's a really ethical um and sustainable way of of harvesting food and i hope that this episode coming to you with jose sort of educates you um if, if you're not already in the know so i hope you enjoy it 
Um, as usual, you can get in touch with me on my website. Uh, if you go to www.thatmrchristopher.com, uh, all my social media links are on there. Twitter is at thatmrchrist or Christ, because uh, Christopher wouldn't fit. I'm also on Facebook, so you can go facebook.com forward slash thatmrchristopher. I'm on Instagram, thatmrchristopher. You can send me an email podcast at that mrchristopher.com i love your feedback um i love hearing all the wonderful things you say about the podcast i love the suggestions people are, are suggesting some really great um potential guests people uh, demographics that they'd like to to know more about so uh yeah keep those coming in because you know i'm, I'm all on that and the best way if you've got someone that you think has got an interesting story tag me tag them on twitter and uh, and you know try and make them come on the show um so yeah what have i been up to news and events not not a lot really feeling sorry for myself because i deleted um a really wonderful episode but um you know without further ado i'll bring you another um wonderful episode with jose suto uh if you enjoy it don't forget to rate and review um and and most of all subscribe and and really important share um because you know that's what it's all about isn't it sharing caring and uh passing the love if you've enjoyed it then uh, pass it on to someone else that's it really i'm i'm not going to talk too much more because um yeah that's that's five minutes of me pretty much moaning at how much of an idiot I am for deleting Matt's episode um yeah screwed up my order for uh putting in uh, in how I'm going to be doing these podcasts as well so I've got to have a little rejig and a reshuffle this evening and see who I'm bringing to you over the coming weeks um so yeah thanks very much and uh enjoy the episode I'm introducing you to normal people different lives husbands brothers sisters So yeah, that's it. I'm, I've, I've just pressed go. We're going to start. Okay. So I'm I'm here with Jose, and uh, yeah, just introduce yourself where we are. Um, I think that's the easiest way to, to roll in. Okay. My, well, my name is um, Jose Suto. Um, I'm chef lecturer in culinary arts uh, at Westminster Kingsway College. I'm one of the senior lecturers there, um, and um, I'm. I think I suppose you call. I'm, I'm a bit of an expert on game, uh, game sustainability. Um, food provenance, all those sorts of things. Basically, I'm, I'm a chef that likes to know where my food comes from and, and understand the backgrounds and what makes it ticks and stuff like that. Where we are, well, we're um, where I stay during the week when I'm down here in London. I'm lucky enough to have a very good friend of mine, Steve Lee, mm-hmm. um, who's a very famous food photographer. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the best food photographers in the country. And uh, his photography studios is here in London. And basically, I, I uh, you know, there's a little flat here which basically I stay here during the week. Um, and uh, tonight Steve's not here. Um, normally he's here during the week working, but tonight he's not here. So, so what? What about outside of the week? The weekends? Where were you? Weekends, basically back at home, uh, Peterborough, Peterborough. Um, on the out on the outskirts of Peterborough, a small village on the outskirts, about fifteen miles outside Peterborough, called Coates. Cool. 
Cool. So, I mean, this studio is incredible. Steve's an incredible photographer. Upstairs, we've got uh, a, a, it's not a replicated kitchen, it is a kitchen. Yeah. Um, but obviously, for all the food photography, for that kind of magazine. Oh, yeah, they, do, they do filming here as well. I mean, yeah, they, they, they do that. That's why the kitchen's set up the way it is because and, basically. And today podcast. <laughs> yeah, today podcast, yeah. <laughs> and then downstairs, the prop studio. So, um, we'll, we'll get onto the fact that you've got uh, a cookbook and obviously. <laughs> something that as a chef I still wasn't aware of just how big the world of props is for <laughs> for uh, tables different tabletops different tablecloths different napkins different you know all the things that you see in a food photo yep. and and here at, at Steve's studio there's one of the largest prop studios is it in London? In London, yeah, 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 one of the largest ones in London. Which is, yeah. It's crazy because it is huge. The amount of different. Yeah, I mean the prop the prop studio is called uh, called Top Popham, Topham Street Props, yeah. and uh, Steve basically started it with a partner with his partner down, um, and they put it together, um, and uh, his business partner, um, she's a phenomenal um, prop stylist. Um, which is which is a funny thing to to be a prop stylist because a prop stylist is a person that basically sets up the plates, the knives, the forks, the table, the tabletops, everything that you could think of in that photograph apart from the food. So yeah. you know any any food magazine that you look at, um, and so wait you, you open it up yeah. and you see a sexy plate of food. Yeah. Everything else you see in that picture is a prop. Yeah, everything, um, and sort of the so the prop houses downstairs. I mean, there's there's everything where you saw it I mean I, I love yeah, yeah. bringing chefs here I love bringing chefs here and any, anybody else because they walk in they take one look at it and they think oh, wow and then their eyes I, this is my head. second time but the first time yeah obviously I was walking down the stairs you're walking down the stairs backwards to see my face as I walk into the room <laughs> yeah. because it is an Aladdin's cave of everything that a, a chef or a keen home cook photographer even you just would just blow their minds it's, it's well, jo- incredible jo- Joe is Joe who's Steve's business partner she's phenomenal I mean she's a fantastic uh, prop stylist and that's how yeah. she started and they started small and then from there just grew and grew and grew and grew and th- th- this building was an old pub so basically yeah, that's, that's what it was so basically that's why you've got the cellar downstairs and obviously you've got if you look at the cellar there's a little doors where you've got the flaps where they used to roll the barrels down um, so we're, we're actually and we're behind a quite a well-known pub, which is the Eagle Pub, which is one of the first um, gastro pubs in London. Yeah, um, it was the first gastro pub we in went London there for, for dinner. A couple of weeks. A couple of weeks ago, ago. yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's where we are. We're, we're near Exmouth Market, <coughs> Farringdon, London. You're from Peterborough. Well, no, you live in Peterborough, but you are from London. London, but with an accent like this, like you are from London. <laughs> but Jose. Very Spanish name, so I, I want to know a little bit. I t- tell the guys a little bit about your sort of your upbringing, your family background, well, my, bits like that. Both my parents are Spanish, yeah. um, and um, my father came from the north of Spain, which is a place called Galicia, um, which is basically right above Portugal. Yeah. And my mother came from right down the south, uh, near La Costa del Sol, uh, a place called Cadiz, which is basically on the on the southern coast of Spain, basically not far from Gibraltar. Yeah. Um, and they met here in London. Um, my father, some of my father's family, basically came over and they were working here in London my, my father's sister and her um, her husband and they had also some friends who came over here and so my dad he, he coming from a small village you mm. know they didn't get out much yeah. so uh, I mean these are the days basically after Spain had just basically finished with the civil war yeah, yeah. you know there was a lot of poverty in Spain um, they didn't get around much but 
and they had conscription in Spain. So, you know, and all the lads, when basically got to a certain age, they had to go into the army. Okay, yeah. And my dad, <clears throat> unlike today, when what they do is basically they take the, you go near to where you live so that you can basically go yeah. to the army conscripted and you can still go back home. Back then, they just used to sort of put everybody's name in a hat and pull them out, and they used to send them all over the place. And Spain's a big-ass country to, to be well, sending people to, yeah? Well, my dad didn't go to Spain. He ended up in North Africa. Oh, right. <clears throat> because uh, North Africa was part of Spain. Oh, so they owned okay. part of the, the whole part of, you know, some of some that parts of Northern Africa, they still own, you know, Spain still owns. Yeah. But they had a lot more territory in North Africa. Wow. So he ended up going there, and um, I think it was Delta he went to. And uh, he, because he was a farmer... They thought, all oh, right, it's a farmer, right? So we'll basically put him in with the animals. So they put him in, in a cavalry. <laughs> my dad had never seen a horse in his life. Yeah, so the first horse he got was this horse that he was given. So like, what to kind look of after. farmer was he? Was he crops uh, and stuff? They, they, no, they had, they had um, cows and they had sheep and pigs and, you know, they make their own salamis and chorizos and hams at home in, in northern oh, nice. parts of Spain. And they made their own bread, they had a bread oven. Um, yeah, they, they did all that sort of stuff. Um, but it was it was just a small farm, you know, a small holding. They sold stuff and they reared mm. um, cattle for milk and also for beef. But um, he'd never he'd never had a horse, <coughs> never seen a horse. I mean, his cousins had a mule, right? And that's the closest he got to it. And the, 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 my dad kept remember telling me that the the postman used to turn up on a mule, right, to basically yeah. give the letters. But so when he got to North Africa and they gave him a horse to look after, he was sort of like, well, he knew which wind was yeah. which. But yeah. apart from that, he didn't know how to look after it, didn't know how to saddle it, didn't know how to ride it. So he had to yeah, learn yeah, pretty yeah. quick. Um, wow. <clears throat> and he spent his... Uh, yeah, North Africa was a place that a lot of Spanish people didn't want to go to. And the reason being is because the, the guys out there, the North Africans, right, they hated the Spanish being there. And yeah. uh, he used to tell me stories about, you know, that, that they just forever watching their backs. And he told me a story about one night, um, not him, but um, a couple of his friends were on guard duty. And the uh, the encampment, the, the, the army encampment that they had was basically near a great big river. Yeah. And there was loads of reeds on the river. And um, these guys were basically in the encampment. They were just sitting there and they started to flash the light over the top of the reeds and the reeds were moving. And so they called out Holt, you know, basically, oh, those are going to fire. And they called out Holt, and the reeds were moving even more. And all these <laughs> reeds started to move in. So they thought they were under attack. So they opened up with a, a, um, a machine gun, basically, into the reeds. Um, the reeds Full stopped on. moving. Yeah, but the reeds stopped moving after they blew half and part. And then when they got all the lights on, they found out, obviously, what happened. Everybody got called out. They all went out to thing with all the lights on. They found out it was a herd of cows that had got loose into the reeds. Oh, no. <laughs> and they killed a load of cows. So, so they had steak for dinner for the next... Uh, yeah, for the next few months, <laughs> yeah, they had steak for dinner. But it, that, that's what it was like. They sort of... Did, Silver lining. <laughs> yeah. But they were sort of living in fear of, of that sort of stuff, you know, all, all the time. But um, after that... I mean, North Africa's not no. necessarily the, always the safest place no. now. Yeah. What was this... 40 odd years ago oh no no probably more than that about 60-70 years ago yeah. oh right okay yeah so but I mean he he once once he'd left came back he came back to the village and obviously he got wanderlust yeah because he'd been out he'd seen stuff and you know he, while he was out there he'd go and visit other places and so he he decided that he wanted to sort of you know stretch his feet and he went out to um, uh, came to the UK came to yeah. Shrewsbury in the UK oh. uh, to a hotel that was basically over there well he went to Madrid first and worked as a baker in Madrid for quite a while um, and then he started working in the catering industry as a, a, commie, a commie waiter then he basically moved up to as basically a, a station head waiter and then the company he was working for in Madrid had a uh, hotel in Shrewsbury so he went to Shrewsbury to work there 
and came to learn English and basically worked there. And then from there, he came to London and he started working in London where he met was my this, I, I, so, so he met so your mum's Spanish mom. but he met her uh, in yeah, London yeah, 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 yeah. my mum on the other side what happened to her was um, mum comes quite a big family as well um, and she um, was working as an assistant to a doctor in right. Gibraltar and the doctor basically she was basically not like a dentist assistant sort yeah. of same sort of thing she was working there and she really liked it she liked all the medical side of anything else so the actual doctor said to her look why don't you go to um, do your training in the UK because she she learned English because she was backwards and forwards to Gibraltar right so uh, she decided well yeah okay well that sounds like a really good thing now you know it's a bit like called the midwife because usually all those things were run here by, by nuns yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, so she came over and went to a nunnery uh, where basically they did all the training for all the nurses and she worked with them did most of her training here and then um, my she met my dad and then her grandmother, her mother, no, her grandmother, beg your pardon, <clears throat> became very ill. So she had to go back to Spain before she'd finished doing all her exams. And she went back to Spain to look after her and eventually she died. And when she came back to the UK, yeah, you know, it'd been a year or so after that and she was sort of decided whether to go back to finish her training mm. or to conti- just continue working as an ex- what they call an auxiliary nurse. Right. And um, so she decided to work and uh, not to do a training uh, met my dad obviously the back again and then they got married and that's it they basically decided to basically live here in the UK uh, me and my brother were born and <clears throat> my brother's a year older than me yeah so we <clears throat> lived here quite um, in sort of uh, the Fulham area of London sort of Kensington that's where I was born born in Kensington okay yeah. um, and um, and then we decided when we were about I think I was about eight seven or eight I think my brother was basically a year younger than me uh, we decided to basically mum and dad decided well, we want to go back to Spain so Franco had basically sort of come and gone yeah. um, and he you know, Franco was a, was a major dictator in Spain from what everybody was telling me obviously I never lived in that era yeah so my missus is Spanish and she was born the first <coughs> year after um, that whole thing ended I yeah think the, you know the when first Franco died, year yeah. that it was it was free of yeah well I mean kind of, I, yeah I, I, I can only surmise from what people basically tell me, but I mean, I, you know, I heard a story once someone said to me that, you know, when Franco died, all the generals were together and uh, one of the generals walked through the door to tell all the other generals that he died and he said, right, he said, uh, I've got some news for you, he said, Franco's dead and then one of the generals stood up and said, yeah, but who's going to tell him? Yeah, and that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the sort of thing that I see because he was like, yeah, you know, real... So after he died, obviously Spain became the new era. Obviously the king of Spain, basically Juan Carlos, basically took over. Yeah. Um, and it, it changed Spain massively. I mean, Spain was basically seen as a third world country. Mm. Um, and then from there, they decided, mum and dad decided, you know, we'll go back. We'll go back to Spain. Um, See what like. <clears throat> yeah, we went back, went to live in Madrid. Um, at the time, there was, there was still a lot of uh, unemployment out there. My dad went to work at a place called La Molina, which is How old was you? Uh, I was about seven or eight. Okay. Yeah, uh, went to play, work at a place called La Molina. La Molina is up in the Pyrenees, uh, in the north um, Pyrenees of Spain, right up in the mountains. It's a, it's a, um, uh, a ski resort, mm-hmm. a really high class ski resort. My dad went to work there, and he used to work there and come home basically at weekends and stuff like that. And um, yeah, everything was fine. But then my brother became ill. Um, he had a um, cartilage wastage in one of his hips, oh. and um, because of that. Um, they couldn't uh, in Spain you know, medical um, facilities weren't as good as they were here in the UK <clears throat> and they had to they tried 
uh, a few different things and basically one of the things they were talking about was basically um, having him in um, in traction for quite a while to allow the cartilage to grow naturally and then basically for yeah. because obviously he was still growing he was still young yeah 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 um, and it, it didn't seem to work. My mum thought, my mum said to my dad, you know, this isn't working. Um, we need to go back to the UK because obviously we were both born here. <clears throat> you know, and we, my mum and dad had worked here for many years. So let's go back. So we came back. Um, my brother um, was, went into hospital and he had an operation, had a pin put in his leg. And uh, he was, he's fine. You know, he's basically since then, he's, he's always been fine. So we never went back. We stayed here. Um, well, I, we, then when we came back here we lived in Fulham and then from Fulham we moved up to Cricklewood in North West London um, and then pretty much the rest of my life was in North West London that part of London I know really well um, the West End of London I know really well because that's where basically my grew yeah. up and went out you know all that sort of stuff so so yeah so just just the one brother <clears throat> yep Robert what does he do is he, is he he's a, he's a, he's a major thing. computer geek right he does yeah. all of the um, he does sort of big networks and stuff like that for big banks I mean he's he's worked for quite a few of the Spanish banks here in London he worked out in Dubai for quite a while yeah. uh, and then came back now he works for some of the banks he basically does a, he's sort of self-employed but he does contract work for big banks so but you you clearly got the food thing from the, the your, your mum your dad yeah. <clears throat> my mum the, the farm the yeah, I mean, food culture of Spain in general. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've the provenance side basically has come from my stuff working with you know being out in, in Spain. I mean, every from the age of eleven till I was probably nineteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, every summer, me and my brother would be shipped off to basically northern Spain, and we'd spend all the time on the farm on my dad's farm where he was born. Um, working with my uncle at the time because my uncle owned the farm now and you know taking cows out to pasture milking cows uh, feeding pigs um, you, you name it harvesting grass yeah for the silage uh, cutting corn you name it all that sort of stuff farm stuff right all summer long right oh, summer holidays that's the way they were spent see I'd enjoy that now but I can imagine <coughs> as a kid <laughs> I loved it you did, I did. I, my brother hated it yeah. my brother's a complete townie <laughs> hated it absolutely hated it I loved it absolutely yeah. loved it I mean I used to go fishing um, I mean I remember I remember going out there and going fishing you know with trout and you're not supposed to we're not allowed you know you're not, because you haven't got a, a, a license to fish so you're not supposed to fish it's, even now like uh, <coughs> my, my, my raft's dad fishes and the licensing <laughs> for fishing is like like what we did with the deer stalking like the, yeah. the deer stalking certificate like gotta go sit down have lessons yeah um, so much yeah. like, you have to have a license in the UK but I think that's just right into the post office and so yeah no this, <laughs> this is uh, yeah out there as well but I remember do, trying to do that and trying you know nicking my my cousin's like a what they call a festa which is basically like a basket that you put the trout in yeah um, nicking that and then basically the fishing rods and trying to go and not really understand what I was doing and then I found that um you could catch frogs really easily, <laughs> believe it or not. And so we used to end up with this uh, a little fishing rod that I had, and we'd take a little piece of cotton and, and you know mix cotton up into what looked like a little fly, so yeah, it was all yeah. right, and then tied it to the edge of a hook. So it was like a fly. It looked like a fly. And all we'd do is basically go over to all of the small uh, channels and dikes that were around the edges of the of the fields that are used to basically irrigate the fields. Yeah. And we just drop it onto the top of the water and just shake it just shake it and then obviously the frogs would come and grab it and there'd be big frogs that that people would eat so basically you know we'd have them and we'd eat, we'd eat frog legs 
Um, and I'm caught by us and basically we prepare them by us with so garlic butter <laughs> no 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 in northern Spain they eat them as well and snails as well we used to go out and cut really I've had, I've had, yeah I've seen snails in Spain yeah. I haven't seen Ro- Romany snails which are the really stripy ones yeah, <laughs> yeah those ones we used to basically go out and pick them and uh, early early in the morning when it's still basically the juice still out the snails are all out and you can basically get loads of them and uh, we prepare them at home uh, and also you know, my, my uncles made their own chorizos in the, in the autumn they kill their own pigs so they basically used to make all their own, you know, the, the black puddings, the mothia, um, the hams, yeah. everything, all that sort of stuff they would prepare there. So, I mean, you've, it sounds like a, a fairly well split, obviously, born and raised in London, in, in, in the city, but you've, you've had enough countryside influences, which, oh, loads, loads. Which, which probably propelled you towards a career in food and then uh, to, to take up things like deer stalking and hunting because of that provenance side of things. Yeah, for me, when I was a kid, uh, going to the farm um, was awesome because it was the countryside and I loved the countryside as a kid. My my dad loves the countryside. My dad at one point here in London had his garden at home, which he basically tore up and planted potatoes and everything else in it. He also had two other allotments. So he had like three sort of like potential gardens going off growing loads of produce that we wouldn't eat. We couldn't eat half of it. He gave it away. Yeah. So, but um, but yeah, that part of it was great. And I mean, I, I, before that, yeah, my mum and dad sometimes we go blackberry picking. Yeah, and we went blackberry picking. We go off to basically blackberry picking to the old, you know, where the old railway networks used to be, right? And they yeah. basically close those off, and there'd be walks through yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's lots of them around. Yeah, yeah, around Acton. There's loads of them around there. We have some friends around that live around Acton. So we go and pick blackberries. The map was to me was going to the country. Right, seeing that <laughs> that amount of greenery was going to the country. Um, but then from there moving on to what we did in Spain was phenomenal yeah, and I remember it really fond really and... really fond memories of all of that yeah. and then from there from the age of about um, when we finished there about 17 my mum decided that it was time for us to meet her side of the family so then from then on we went to the south of Spain and the south of Spain my uncles did all different things because they went fishing so basically yeah. I went out with them fishing went scuba dive not scuba dive but snorkeling um, with spear, spear guns you know catching yeah, octopus yeah, yeah. And, Vanessa did that the, yeah. the spear and the octopus and stuff <clears> like yeah. that and catching um, did you ever do it with a white sock nope Vanessa white sock goes with her dad octopus really love like the colour white so if you dangle on, on a line a white sock They'll come out of the hole to try and grab it. Really? <laughs> Apparently so. Never heard that. Never heard that. I mean, we, we used to it with, uh, with the, yeah, with the, Bigger. the, spy, the spear <laughs> rifles, the, spy, the spear guns. Um, and also, um, another way that kids used to do it is basically use washing up bottles. Because basically, they are very, very tight. We're just putting water, cold water, um, sweet water in there. And you find an octopus where the octopus is hiding and you just flush it with um, sweet water. And they they can't take it, so they basically come out of the hole, and then you catch them. Oh, there you go. <clears throat> so it's a different sweet way water and white socks. Yeah, you well, sweet. I say wheat sweet water. I mean, just you know, not salt water, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I spent then I, from seventeen to about twenty one. I was basically did that, and then obviously once I was twenty one, I could go wherever I wanted. What, what do you prefer? Do you prefer north or south as well? <sighs> it was hard because basically I learned different things in each place. Yeah, you know, I, I, in the south also I went shooting for the first time. I'd never gone shooting before. My uncles took me out. Uh, on quail, on partridge, and on rabbits, yeah, right. that was uh, and and that was awesome because yeah. that was in in the, in the north of Spain. We went out. We saw where food was grown. We saw how it was grown. We saw the provenance of all of the animals. I saw cows, you know, calves being born, piglets being born, the milk. You know, I, I, in the morning, right? I remember my auntie had this brown 
sort of like it was like a camping jug right and she'd bring you know that sort of stuff that's got enamel on it yeah it's yeah, chipped yeah, enamel yeah. and she'd bring it to the table every morning it was a big one because they milk the cow straight into it and bring it to the table for the coffee and it had a massive amount of froth on the top of it right and it was warm from when it come out of the cow <clears throat> it was awesome it was awesome I mean when you put it into coffee it was like you know that instant cappuccino <laughs> absolutely awesome yeah. I, and I remember those smells and the, the tastes and, and the other you know all the sorts of things that they used to do there they had their own bread oven yeah they cooked bread and they made bread from barley I've got a which is dairy. really heavy bread really heavy bread and they used to make it where there's this this, this structure where there's like a um, like a, a, a rounded I don't know what you call it, like a wall, rounded wall in there. And there's a hutch, a hatch, and you open the hatch, and inside is the oven at the top. And obviously they build a fire on the top of the oven. Mm. And then once it basically gets red hot, they brush it all to the back and it drops down onto the bottom where all the embers go. And then they drop the, the bread onto it. And they used to make also empanadas. Empanadas is like, it's a bit like a calzone pizza, but they yeah. see a large thing, you know, so you basically put all the bread dough down you put all of the ingredients down like tomatoes onions you know tomato sauce and and they put basically uh pieces of ham or sardines or whatever like that on top of it or in tuna fish and then another layer of dough and then that would be baked in the oven yeah. and then you cut it into pieces and you eat it like a sandwich i, I have had that <coughs> my first experience of empanadas and, and that that is, is a, it's a really kind of specific dough yeah, yeah. finish isn't yeah it? But I had like, the South American versions first, yeah. And then obviously being with Vanessa, being from from, from Spain, she like makes them, and, and it's more like a pie than <laughs> yeah. The, the, it's like a pie, the yeah. Little Cornish pasty, like yeah. the, the South American ones, but yeah. They are, but that, they are yeah. Good, but that that side of it, see, I, from there I learned all the food side, and then when we went to the south of Spain, I went fishing, my uncle, so I went harvesting food. So I harvested, you know, fish from the sea. And um, we went out and basically we went camping and I, I caught a barbel, you know, a very large barbel, right, in, um, uh, off the rivers of basically yeah. El Ebro in Spain. Um, we also went um, shooting rabbits, you know, uh, and partridge and, and quail. You know, we went out and saw where this stuff was, yeah, and harvested it and brought it back. And obviously the Spanish are very passionate about, you know, game and eating yeah, and yeah, all yeah. that sort of stuff, yeah. So I brought it back, we cooked it and we had it. I suppose that's probably a, a good point because... <coughs> You being a chef by trade, me me having that in my background, I could talk to you about food all, all, all day long. But you know, for, for today, I really want to speak about the, the hunting and you know, the, the whole thing that goes with that. Because I'm probably quite sure that as, as we promote this, we all promote it as something that, yeah, he's a foodie, but he's also this guy that kind of goes out and does this thing. And I think a lot of people are going to see that as a that's controversial and. Now, obviously, in the, the interest of transparency, I've got to say that I, I might be a bit biased because you actually introduced me to, to deer stalking <laughs> and got me hooked on it. So I'm going to try and sort of listen to it and, and we'll put it out there. And the, the point is to not say, you know, so pro hunting, drill it into people. I don't understand people's aversion to basically the harvest of food for, you know, the harvest of wild food. And that's what's happening here. It's harvesting wild food. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, bringing that food to the table. It's something that man's done basically since the beginning of life, since he basically used to, you know, got up on his two feet and picked up a rock and threw it at a bird, you know, yeah. or collected a bird's egg. Um, that, that's what he's done. Now, you know, people might turn around and say, well, we don't need to do that anymore because we domesticated animals and therefore we've got animals we can domesticate. Absolutely, yeah. And that, that, that's one of the things that I wanted to bring up, actually. I mean, you, you've kind of started to answer it before I've asked it, is that a lot of people will say, yeah, but we we don't need this brutality of guns going banging around the countryside because we've 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 created farming well, yeah but we've we've i'm not gonna I'm, I'm not here to slag off farming right no. but 
Um, in farming now, we've created monster animals, right? We've created animals that, you know, are so far removed from the original species that they we, we started to farm that it's frightening. Yeah. Uh, you look at a chicken, a chicken basically has some of the largest pectoral muscles of, of any bird of its size. It has some of the largest leg muscles of, of any bird of its size. Yeah. yeah. Yet it can not fly and it can barely sustain its weight. We've created that. We've yeah. manipulated a chicken to produce that. Now, if you go back to, I mean, I'm sure you know, as being a chef, you know, a poulet brass, a lablet anglaise, yeah. a, um, um, a poulet noir, right? All of these farmyard chickens that are from France, the farmyard chickens, right? And that's what they are. And they're elongated, they've got long legs, they're tougher, they take longer to grow because this is the original chicken that's the original chicken and people who you know I, I, it really confounds me that people that basically sort of like say oh I've tried pheasant once I didn't like it it was, it was a bit strong flavour sure. well, but yeah that's what our, that's what chicken should taste like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because the fully flavour tastes and senses <coughs> sort of diluted oh massively a lot I mean if it, it, a, a cow if you were to take a cow and put it into the middle of the field and release a load of wolves the cow would turn around and look at them and think what are they it wouldn't <laughs> run away because we've taken it so far down the line of domestication, right, that they don't see danger. They're just basically, they're just plodding along, doing what they're doing. And I, like I say, I'm not here to to slag off, you know, to slag off farming. Farming is an essential thing of what we need. Absolutely, yeah. But don't tell me that it's, you know, there's, there's something wrong with what, harvesting food. There's yeah. nothing wrong with harvesting food. It's basically a natural way of producing. And in, in, in the UK... You know, just that happens that basically our deer populations are, are, are exploding massively, and and they. I mean, that's a key word that you used is, is harvesting, yeah. ra- rather than hunting. <clears throat> so I, I've got a bit of a a thing about the word hunter. Like you, you, you're a deer stalker, which is a, a form of hunting. Yeah, don't say that in America too much. A deer stalker. <laughs> right. Okay. Why is that? For the word stalking in America means something completely different. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, I think I've said that here and said that you know. I, I'm a stalker and people are like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh dear, oh dear. Well, I, 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 sat, is, I is... sat in there, I'll tell you a quick story. I sat in Alaska once and I, with, with, I did some work out there and I was with a load of guys that basically do deer hunting out there. And uh, and we were talking about basically different places that they'd been and where they'd gone. I was in awe of the, the, you know, the wilderness because they were out in complete wilderness. Sure, you know? nice. And, it, and I said to them, oh yeah, I said, but guys, I said, you haven't done anything until you've gone stalking in the Highlands of Scotland. And <laughs> all of them turned around and looked at me as if I was some sort of, I went, no, 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 deer hunting, deer hunting, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, do, do you think that it's got a negative, to the people that are maybe, I don't, I don't want to say uneducated, but uninformed about yeah. about sort of hunting in, in the UK and why we do it. And we'll come on to the whys and wherefores later, but for, for now, I mean, I, I do think that the word hunter does. You say I'm a hunter, everyone automatically goes to bloodthirsty, not with a gun, bashing around the countryside yeah. for a blood sport. Deer stalking. Start, let's let's deal with the both sides of it, right? Deer stalking. Let's then look at game birds. Deer stalking. But we have massive populations of deer. We we should only have two deer species in the UK. We should only have basically red deer and roe deer. And we've got and we've got six. And we've got six. Yeah. So basically, we've got six deer that have been introduced into the UK. Um, not all, not all by you know, recently. That you know, the Romans have had a lot to do with it. Of basically introducing things like fallow into the UK. Yeah. Um, and then we've got basically estates such as the Woburn Estate, right, where deer basically were put out onto the estate. You know, the Duke of Bedford was a massive um, collector of different types of deer. You know, and rightly so. I mean, because he, you know, if that that if he hadn't brought over 
you know, one of the rarest deer in the world, the Pear David uh, from China over to the UK and bred it at Woburn Abbey, they would be extinct in the wild now. Yeah, and, uh, and for the same reason, I suppose, the, 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 the ideas that the aristocrats uh, back then did that was the same way that we want to save the tiger now. Yeah. We ain't got no bloody tigers in the UK, but yet there's people that will spend three quid a month on donating to WWF or whatever to say, let's save the tiger in China. So I kind of, yeah, all right, it's a bit shit that we had two indigenous species. We've now got six species total. Well, they're, they're the species that have escaped from parks and stuff right sure. over the years. And, and, but they yeah. were in the parks in the first yeah. place for good reason, right? Yeah. And and and, and those those animals have basically now become part of they've become an intrinsic part of basically our our countryside. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we've got loads of animals in here that are basically non-indigenous that live in our countryside. The pheasant is one. The pheasant is non-indigenous. It's basically introduced here by the Romans. Yeah. And Rome, there's even there's, the Romans have written stuff. Yeah. That's basically that you know it's documented about ways of rearing pheasants. Yeah. Yeah. And keeping pheasants. Um. You know, so rabbits. Rabbits were introduced to the UK. But we, we've got, in this country, right, we've got two types of hare and one type of rabbit, okay? Rabbits were introduced into the UK, again, by the Romans, and all most rabbits in the in the world basically stem from one place in Spain, right, where they were basically, and they went around the world because they were such an easy source of food to grow. In here, if you look at they it... they breed like rabbits. Oh, yeah, because they breed like rabbits. <laughs> but if you, if you look at the, uh, again, it's documented about, you know, uh, the warreners, right, that were had in medieval times and basically around uh, in Tudor times where these guys were, were charged with looking after large areas basically where they used to breed rabbits yeah yeah and they used to ferret them up and basically catch them for food and so so all these things i mean and like i said you know three two hare species one rabbit species the brown hare was introduced into the country by the romans as well the only indigenous hare that we have in the uk right is basically the white or arctic hare or blue hare as it's called which is up in up in scotland lives up very very high up yeah and, and basically eats a lot of heather um, so yeah there's lots of things that have been introduced in the UK but be- over hundreds of years it just became part of our countryside and you know pheasant now is part of our countryside I mean uh, you know you can't buy a pack of Christmas cards without seeing a pheasant on the front of no, one no it is something that kind of goes hand in hand with the countryside if you go, go to a pub the artwork in a pub it's, yeah. it's got scenes of the countryside it's got rabbits it's got pheasants it's got other game birds and yeah, and yeah a lot of it isn't it, it shouldn't be here but it's here. But it's here. Yeah. So we've got the so, choice of... So our, our thing is, you know, with deer, um, deer need control. Again, we have no predators in the UK that predate on deer. Why? Because we killed them all. Yeah, Th- it, Things like... Wolves and bears and lynxes. So we had wolves, bears and lynxes yeah, yeah. in the UK yeah, yeah. and we, we, <clears> we took them out. We took them out and basically so, therefore then, you know, all the deer that were here and the ones we added to them, they had no natural predators. Um, so therefore, you know, those deer species need to be kept in check. So the only way they be kept in check is basically by management. And, you know, and, and they have to be management. And, and it, it's a sad state of affairs in the UK that basically our growing population is encroaching onto their habitats. So as more as we encroach into the habitats, and the more and more of them that they breed, when it comes into conflict with us, with road traffic accidents, with basically, you know, problems with basically them getting into uh, uh, crops and eating crops and stuff like that... And, Unfortunately, that's what happens when you've got a growing population, and, and sure, yeah, yeah. So, so they need to be controlled. I'm not saying annihilate. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people basically challenge me on the fact and say, "Okay, well, Munjack shouldn't be here. Let's annihilate all the Munjacks." No, yeah, that's not yeah, that's yeah. not an answer. No, no, it's not. But I mean, <clears throat> in theory, from the the point of view of someone that says, "I oh, know hunting is bad," 
I prefer to say, dear management, you've already you've already said you know that kind of control. It 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 sort of we get to the point where we'll present a solution. You, humans are breeding more. Humans, uh, we have immigration to the country. We have uh, domestic growth. Where, it, like you say, we're encroaching on their land. Do we stop that? Not really. Well, that ain't gonna not, happen. Not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Not gonna happen. Um, it, it's probably just as, if not more so, I would say, um, unethical to say, well, we should have two species of deer here, so let's just annihilate the other four. But, I, I'd, I'd say, you know, to do that in one fell swoop, I don't think that gets us anywhere. So, no. f- from my point of view, from your point of view, I'm sure, deer management... You know, they have a right to be here now because they've been here that long. Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially ones, you know, you're saying since Roman times, since, you know, hundreds of years when, when you know, the, the, the British arist- aristocrats in, in their bigger states brought them over to save them in, in large part some some were, were brought over I'm sure for, for decoration and, and status but like you say uh, conservation back then was the same as us trying to protect tigers and pandas now yeah I mean a, a, a lot of it was window dressing in basically in, in the bigger states yeah <clears throat> I mean that happened Hall, one of the estates that basically we, we did um, when we worked on the book we worked there quite a lot with, with Julian and Lord Chumley there um, yeah, has has one of the most beautiful um, white deer, white fallow deer herds in the country. I mean, it's, it, well, it's, it's the best one in the country. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, but that's that's the family have brought that on. Yeah, they have a, an intrinsic connection with the colour white and everything they've got. You know, the white heart on their emblem. The houses are all white, man. They're basically the area of the estate, and the deer are all white. You know, and yeah. and that's uh, that's something because that estate has been basically known for it, but. You know, we, my my thing has always been right is that I want my kids to be able to go out into the wild and see deer in the wild. Yeah. And I want their kids to be able to do the same sort of thing. And I, I, what I don't want is basically deer to be completely annihilated. But what we have to do is be realistic about it and basically we need to control deer species. Um, that's not means eradicate or kill thousands and thousands. It just means keep them to numbers, manageable numbers, right? Where we can take a natural harvest of these animals, right? To basically, you know, to eat and to basically to to put on the plate. That's that's well, that's the way that basically deer management. That's that's what deer management is all about. It's about looking at the. It's it's about doing Mother Nature's job. In other words, Mother Nature, right, the way that she would work, right, is that she would have predators that would balance out yeah. the head of the deer numbers that we have in the UK. So the predators would predate on the young. Yeah, because we've as... already screwed up Mother Nature's original yeah. plan. There's nothing we can do about that now. That happened no. hundreds of years ago. No. But, we but, can only manage what we have now, yeah. right? But, that, but she, you know, the way it works is obviously those animals like wolves, lynxes and, and bears would eat the younger animals that basically aren't really they're not good enough to basically make it through a winter or to the, to that extent the older animals that are starting to basically go out you know they're not as strong the, the good healthy strong core of the whole herd right that that would be the ones that basically mainly get away with it or basically would, would live on and you know when it became their time it became their time you know they would be eaten as well by the base by these animals now for us deer, good deer management is about looking at the herd selecting the right animals to remove from the herd yeah, so the the herd stays there and it becomes a strong herd. And also, to, to, it's a sustainable herd that there's enough food there to maintain that herd. Yeah. Because if we if we take the if we take the the consensus that some people have, okay, no, we're not shooting any more deer, right? And we're just going to leave them all. 
<clears throat> what happens is the deer numbers basically start to grow in such large numbers that number one they come into a lot of conflict with humans and they start eating a lot of basically unnaturally available food to them so therefore they start to breed in large and larger numbers then when they go through the winter sort of like urban foxes yeah well don't even start me there on urban foxes <laughs> but, no um, I mean we'll, we'll get onto it we'll yeah. get onto it because but I think it's uh, like it's like, it's so, so what happens is basically you've got natural food before the harvest, right? The harvest takes place, right? And you've got all these deer that are bred really, really well because there is na- lots of natural food about. The harvest happens, all the food goes. The, the fields become empty over the winter. So the deer then resort back to their natural food, which they find in woodland. Now, if you have a massive population of deer in unsustainable numbers in areas where there isn't woodland to sustain that amount of deer or there isn't vegetation to sustain that amount of deer what starts to happen is that we start to really tax that vegetation the deer will basically start to eat things like bark and kill trees yeah which the trees can then no longer grow next year to give more food yeah so therefore what they do is they start annihilating the countryside on there and also the deer numbers because they can't all feed we start having animals die yeah yeah and starve we also have animals that basically will become pregnant during the rut and then we'll, we'll some deer what they'll do is basically they'll uh, they'll abort the fetuses because there's not enough food to you know th- these sure, are sure, wild sure. animals they if there's food enough to sustain them and the fetus throughout the basically the winter the animal will carry the fetus if there's not enough food the animal the, the animal itself right just rejects the fetus it's not something that it wants in its body because it cannot sustain that animal and that's mother nature's way of handling it so that you survive yeah and that'll happen yeah and so therefore what we're doing here is we're starving out this this herd whereas if we had deer management to have a number sustainable numbers where basically there is enough food there to sustain those animals that isn't going to happen but they're going to be there for everybody to see they're going to be there and we can take a natural harvest from them so how can that be wrong yeah no absolutely absolutely i think, I think it's a it's, it's a difficult sell when you just put it into one or two sentences and that's why i was really keen to kind of get someone that that knows a fin- i could have sat there and, and I, i've done my deer stalking certificate and we'll, we'll go on to the sort of the qualifications and, and the laws that govern what we do and, and things like that but I haven't got enough real-time, real-life experience. You're, you're certainly the expert on the subject, and uh, you know, I think anybody that is anti-hunting or just not necessarily sure about it, those people that sort of they're not necessarily sure, you know, push comes to shove, they're going to say, "No, I think it's quite a, a bad <coughs> thing or a cruel thing," because yeah, you know, it, it, because they don't understand. They don't understand it, and I think I, I, I'm a really big fan of um, do you know you know Johnny Vaughan. Yeah. So he's got the radio show um, uh, on on Radio X. Love that, and pretty much agree with almost everything he says. But he was doing uh, doing a, a, a link or a bit that was you know, things that shouldn't go together. You know, things things that you see here and you think they go together, but they shouldn't. And, and one of the things that he said was uh, shooting and conservation. <laughs> Which really made me laugh because what you and I are both members of the British Association for Shooting and Conservation. Yeah, yeah. So it's that that's that's a whole organisation built around those two things. And I think you know we're, we're sort of into if people are listening and trying to understand. You know, I think, and and this is why I don't really like the word hunter because it has too many negative, uh, in my mind, negative connotations to it. People instantly go to the the, the, the bad side, the guns and the blood and the you know and I think well actually no 
it is that deer management it's deer stalking you know stalking there's a craft to it there's a there's a there's a skill it's not just about going in jeeps bouncing around the countryside banging guns at, at poor defenseless bandy it's about looking at the bigger picture looking yeah. at the, the growth and the numbers the car accidents that would happen you know we can hit a fox in a car there's loads of them foxes going down you hit a deer it can often be a different story yeah. deer can go off person in car crashes into another car or, or, or even a tree and bye bye Charlie it's sort of deer need to be managed um, I mean I, one of the things that gets me about people right is people say oh we shouldn't Hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this, we should just leave them alone, leave them alone. Leave. The what would that is, look like the, if we did? The, what, what would it look the, like? The if thing is, we, we, as human beings, right, we're terrible. We, we, we've messed up loads of things. I mean, we've messed up loads of stuff, and then we, we think we're putting it right, and then we make it even worse. I mean, foxes, you, know, you touched on foxes earlier on, right? Let me tell you something now. People basically go on and on about foxes and basically fox hunting. I'm, I'm not. <clears throat> I'm not a person. I'm not. I'm not the person to turn around whether they say fox hunting is right or wrong or nothing. Yeah, because basically I, I shoot deer out in the countryside. But one of the things that really gets me annoyed, right, is that people basically think that you know they're, they're, this sort of that fox hunting basically kills hundreds and hundreds of foxes. Let me tell you, right, the day that the most of the governments of this country basically started putting out wheelie bins instead of basically putting food out in bags, yeah, yeah, killed more foxes. Right, and I think anybody else could have done yeah. because what happened is that you, you know, the urban fox, right, is a fox that's basically, you know, we, you, you walk around London in the middle of the night, right, you walk past a fox. You know, I, I remember as, as a youngster, oh, they're right? fearless, they're fearless. Oh. They'll sit. <coughs> I, I was uh, coming over by the Rotherive Rive Tunnel <laughs> during rush hour where there's hundreds of bleeding cars going around this little roundabout, and there's this fox, <coughs> casual as you like, just strolling around the roundabout, crossing the road, just didn't care, didn't care. And, and, you know, and Mike, now you see less than you used to see. You used to see a heck of a lot more. Yeah. The reason you see a heck of a lot more is because there was a lot more food source for those foxes here in London. Yeah. What happened when the wheelie beans came in, loads of foxes starved and loads of foxes had mange and basically yeah. they, they, they became very ill and they just died because the food source has been cut out completely. Yeah. Yeah, they're pests, right? There were pests here in London. 
Um, so, you know, <clears throat> we, we, try, we think as human beings, right, we're basically, oh, yeah, we'll fix a thing. And we don't. We make another problem. Yeah, and and um, you know, human beings are, are are terrible in some parts because they don't think about what we, what what they're doing, or they didn't think about what they were doing in the past. But now, right, the problem is is not to sort of dwell on what we did in the past. We shouldn't have done it. Now is the the, the problem thing is to basically look at how we can best mediate what happened, yeah, or what has happened, and the best way to basically say that we are if you like working with nature and in so that basically those animals will still be there yeah. the conservation side of it is like you know again we've talked about this talking birds right you know shooting pheasants and basically yeah uh, and you know game out in, in in this country again people have this real big problem right with basically the shooting of game I don't understand it I really don't understand it right if you were to see a chicken right the, the, the way they're brought up right inside the sheds right if they're basically in big barns or whatever in the sheds and then they were, they're collected you know they, they don't have a guy that goes in there and picks them all up and puts them into the crates they have this great big machine right that sort of hoovers them into the crates and then they go off right to the, basically in a truck that's going to take them to the abattoir where they're going to be hung upside down and they're going to go they'll be stunned then their throat's going to be cut then they're going to be put through a load of water then the, the feathers are going to come off Right, hold a minute, right? And then we yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. a pheasant. <clears throat> they're basically okay. It's reared, and you know <clears throat> there are very strict rules about basically the way reared pheasants and the uh, BASC basically has got rules and guidelines about producing pheasants, right? And I'm not saying that there are not people that don't do it right, no, yeah, because absolutely. in everything there are people that don't do it wrong. But as basically conscientious people and basically people that, that basically go out into the countryside, right, there are rules and set that basically how the birds are reared, right, and they're reared and then they're put out into large pens in the middle of the wood. They're basically allowed to go out of those pens. They're fed in the pens. They go, they have a certain amount of wild time in the country. They are free range. I mean, for a large, they are yeah, for a free large range, part, for a large part of that. No. And then, and then, I'm a okay, <laughs> and then, right, you know, they're flushed, right, and then as they're flushed, basically they're shot out of the sky. Okay, let's weigh this up, right? We're basically born in a barn and never see the day of light, yeah? And we're born under 24-hour light, so we eat as much as possible so that we reach basically our, our kill weight, yeah, as soon as possible, yeah? And then we're basically hoovered up into a bag and taken to slaughterhouse, or we're reared, we're put out into yeah. the wild, like, wild, yeah? And we're given a certain amount of freedom, right, living out there until we're shot. And I, I think a lot of the people <clears throat> see that as a... Okay, so why is it not just one farmer? I think I think a lot of the people that that will have a problem with with hunting uh, is because they'll see you're just a rich git living in the countryside that wants to enjoy blood sport. So you're going to go along, pay a load of money for a pheasant shoot, and why can't that just be like okay, so free range these pheasants, but get a farmer to to flush them out, collect them, and 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 take them out. Uh, no, but you just say, you, but you just say that. You see, the problem is, right? We haven't taken a pheasant, right, and taken it to the point, right, of a Frankenstein bird like a chicken where it can't fly. Yeah. The pheasant still retains all of its characteristics of wanting to fly, wanting to eat certain things at certain times of the year, wanting to be in certain places, yeah, wanting to to do certain things throughout the day. Sure. Yeah, we've taken a chicken, right, and we've produced it. I mean, you, you get some free-range chicken farms, right, where they open the doors and the chickens come out and they, they walk about three metres out and then walk straight back into the barn again. And if you look around the outside of the barn, it's all mudded around the outside of the barn because they don't go any further. Yeah, you've got other places which you know, which the birds go out a lot further. And again, I'm not here, you know, to, to stag off farming, right? We have to farm animals. We have to farm yeah, animals. Absolutely, and yeah. we, but we should farm animals, basically, in the most humane and ethical ways of basically farming. But do not tell me that basically harvesting animals from the wild, wild animals, right, for food, 
is any worse medicine than farming yeah mm. because it's not the only way the only people that basically can stand up and say that to me are people who have decided not to eat any meat at all and basically yeah, sure, vegetarians sure. Yeah. yeah, and vegetarians or vegans. With there's that, nothing with no, that. I do wrong with find that. a lot of people <coughs> that have a problem with uh, harvesting food from the wild with a gun. They they tend to have they tend to be the people that are vegans that are like, okay, you know, all animal life is sacred and we shouldn't shoot it, and especially turn it into a sport or a recreational activity. One of the things that I would say is, well, okay, you're always going to get those people that want to go and pay for a shot and they don't really care about the food on the table. And I'm pleased to say that both you and I aren't that kind of person. But that kind of pays for the conservation, right? So if someone wants to go and stick a load of money into doing a shoot, that money then goes into... Well, the actually, the, the areas where these birds the where these birds live um, are what they call conservation areas because yeah. basically the, the, the seed that's planted there the cover crop that's planted there the amount of wildlife that lives there basically you know in and around the the shoots uh, and where the birds are the fact that basically in some shoots they'll take out years where they basically won't shoot you know they'll leave them for two three years because they decide oh, no this year we're not going to shoot we're going to leave yeah. it uh, I mean the conservation efforts of basically you know grey partridge has been massively improved in this country I mean grey partridges you know in this country right what happened right before the war right we had small farms with lots of hedgerows and the grey partridge basically is a partridge that needs to be somewhere well grey or English partridge as they call it it needs to be somewhere where there are hedgerows where there are insects there is a lot of insect life because it's as chicks they rely on a heck of a lot of insects they eat basically a lot more insects than they eat anything else now <clears throat> after the second world war the government decided that obviously it needed to produce food for its growing population so they tore up a lot of those hedgerows and made sort of big super fields yeah yeah with less hedgerows they also then started to use a heck of a lot of pesticides and the pesticides obviously killed all the insect life now this came down hard on the grey partridge right because the grey partridge basically couldn't survive that because basically there's no insects for its youngsters to eat yeah yeah and they are quite finicky grey partridge you know, if you get bad weather they, they can die off and stuff like that so you know that that was done yeah, and we, we annihilated basically, or we nearly annihilated an indigenous bird of our country, yeah, because we've decided to basically grow food like that. And that's yeah. because of farming. And, and that was never going <clears> to <throat> not happen because we, you know, we have a population to feed. Of course, yeah. That, that sort of that needs to happen. That's, yeah. that's no one's that's, that's, that's but, because but, that's but why farming needs to happen. That's why farming needs to happen, yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with farming, right? Good farmers are basically look after the land. I mean, now, you know, the, the, the fine line between basically organic and basically what we produce nowadays is, 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 you know, getting finely eroded because basically we're producing, we're being so much more careful about what we put into the environment, yeah, on, on in farmland and in the way that we rear our animals, yeah, natural as possible, yeah, to yeah. basically be as natural as possible. I mean, the word organic sometimes I think has been bastardised a bit, yeah, over... over over the you know, the years, it, you know, everything gets labelled with organic on it, you know, and, and people have this misconception. I mean, I, I did a lesson at the college where I speak to my students and I said to them, "What does the what does the word organic conjure up in your mind? Oh, it's better for you. Oh, it's free. It's free range. Oh, it no pesticides. Uh, no pesticides. No, uh, you know, uh, artificial anything sure. into it. Um, no sort of like um, uh, fertilizers being used. And, and the word no." Not some, which yeah. is the what, what is the reality. I was going to say, get, get the reality is some. That that's not the case. No, no the, the reality <laughs> is that there are some that can be used, right? You know, a cow, an organic, organic beef. Yeah, the cow can still eat a percentage of grass that's not organic. 
Yeah, because basically you, you can't have it eating 100% organic grass. There's enough organic fields out there in, in the country to produce that. Sure. So that word, Zibasa, to me, the word naturally produced is something that I think is worthy. I mean, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a massive fan, right? And I think he is awesome in the way he's farmed, right? Of Paul Kelly, right? Okay. Kelly Bond's turkeys. Yeah, yeah. Paul, right, is one of these farmers that I think, right, I take my hat off to him. I met Paul years and years ago. Um, when Paul basically, you know, he, he took his, his free range turkeys that his dad's basically found his, his bronze turkeys and he went and put them out into free range and he, and everybody laughed at him and said, that ain't going to work. Turkeys don't grow like that. They ain't going to like it, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Paul didn't care. He did it and it worked, right? Then I met him a few years later when he basically decided that he was going to take turkeys back to their original, um, you know, their original habitat. Because Paul had said to Paul's Paul's philosophy, right, is that every year when they finish Christmas, right, they all go off on holiday, right, because they need it. Because <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. after Christmas, it's a mag, mega out for them. Yeah, and then he gets season. all yeah. his staff together, right, and they sit around the table, right. He told me this years ago. He said they sit around the table. He said and they look at everything they've done. They look at what they've done, how well it worked, and what they could do better. Yeah. yeah. And always that what they can do better. How can we do it better? Right than, they, than we've done and to try to evolve yeah. what they do and one year he decided he, he was coming back from a holiday he told me and he, he looked out the window of his uh, um, of his airplane and he saw of, of the, the plane that was coming into Stansted <clears throat> and as he looked down he said he saw all these little wood, little bits of woodland everywhere and there were little bits of woodland that nobody can do anything with I mean some of them are and anyone that's been on a plane <clears throat> will know yeah. exactly what we're talking about those tiny little bits yeah. that... and some, some of them are little del holes where <laughs> you know the, the bombs dropped right and they became little del holes in, in the countryside so there's all these little bits of wood and he said no one can use them for anything and he said you know what turkeys their natural habitat out in you know America where they live yeah, is basically yeah. woodland he said I'm going to put turkeys back in the woodland and he took a load of turkeys he encircled a, a load of woodland and some fields yeah, around the woodland um, he brought two puppies up right and lived them with the turkeys right two little uh, um, what are they the collies right yeah. um, so that basically they could have them around where the turkeys were right to keep foxes out and stuff like that and you know, the, the, he, wherever he, he would go the, the actual dogs would go with him the smell would be there so the foxes wouldn't come in and he put a fence around it an electric fence all the way around this woodland and these this, these fields and he put a load of turkeys in it and I remember sort of saying to him, sort of, how's it going? And he went, mm, not very good. He said, they're not very happy in this woodland because there's no cover in this woodland. There's no shed. It's just the woodland. Yeah. yeah. So these birds are basically at the elements. Yeah. And he said the beginning... And, and an animal's <coughs> natural instinct is always to, to go where it's safest, <laughs> yeah. warmest, driest, fed the best. Yeah. And these, these, going back onto the pheasant pens, you're saying, they can be in huge, great big fields and woodland and there's a tiny little area where they can sleep it's dry they've got food they've got food yeah but they go through a little gate and then they're sort of in this big wide world that for all intents yeah, they're they, in the they, wild yeah. but at night they'll always go back into the back, yeah. for a feed and for their shelter <clears throat> yeah because that's that sort of yeah and that that's the the, the best ethical farming that we, Definitely. we can we can do well, well Paul, Paul's turkeys at the beginning were a bit sort of ropey and he said to me when it rained they got all wet but within a few weeks, yeah. <laughs> Just imagine a they, soggy turkey. Yeah, well, he said within a few weeks, he said they 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 started preening a lot. Yeah, so they started watering their fe- waterproofing their feathers. They were eating wild food. They were picking stuff that they knew to eat. He said he took and me. I remember, t- yeah. Back. I, I remember him taking me down there, and I remember him picking a load of her rose hips on the way, and some blackberries, and he mixed them all up in his hand. He said, "Watch this." He threw them on the floor. And the turkeys come running over. They all ate the blackberries not one of them at the rose hips. Awesome. He said, how do they know 
not to eat the rose hips. He said, all these birds were born in incubators. He said, how do they know? He said, the, the actual natural instinct is coming back to these birds. At night, they sit in trees. They all roost in the trees at night. So the most ethical, yeah. best way of farming, right? And Paul's birds aren't organic. Yeah. Right. But they're as naturally bred as possible. Or they weren't organic when, when I was there. But I mean, may, he may have organic now, but they weren't organic. So they, they are the most naturally well-bred, um, ethical way of producing livestock I have ever seen. You know, I mean, it really is. And that's, you know, that for me, basically that's what farming is about. It's basically people look at that and, and we are becoming so clued up on doing that, especially in this country. I mean, we're, we're better in this country than a lot of other countries are doing that. Absolutely, sort of stuff. yeah. And, but <coughs> at the end of the day, Turkey still needs to, to be dispatched. Yeah. Humanely, but it still needs to be dispatched. And I think going on to to back onto the the deer game birds out in the wild that wild harvest yeah. that's still very much a fact isn't it that we need to dispatch an animal yeah but any animal needs to be dispatched it's not herded <coughs> up in a pen and and taken into a slaughterhouse because they're wild there, there's no real other way of, of doing that it's, but to tell you the truth it's, yeah, it's a more yeah. ethical way and it's also uh, less stressful for the animal to be basically shot in the wild yeah. I mean a, a cow is shot it's just shot with a captive bolt yeah. so it's put into a crush where it can't move right and the captive bolt basically it's, it's, a, it's like a bullet that maintains inside the, the actual gun so as it comes out it sort of pushes out into the head of the animal right, and destroys the brain yeah but it's, it's shot you know the other birds are basically electrocuted before they go in they're stunned and then they're basically they're killed so yeah I'm sorry but any animal that's been dispatched is being dispatched yeah. whether it be basically at close quarters or at a distance with deer it's done at a distance yeah the animal doesn't even know you're there most of the time you've been out with me Mike you've seen yeah, it absolutely. yeah the animals are basically there one minute they're chewing the grass you basically bank the dead the dam yeah. and most of the times they've still got a bit of grass in their mouth from the last feed but it, it's been it's ethically ethically right because basically the animal is not being stressed it is a wild animal. It's, this is as free range as you can get. And produces a better product as well. So yeah, it, 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 it it's better for the, <coughs> the, the animal welfare side of things, but it's obviously better for, for yeah. us as well, which, you know. Yeah, it's, well, no, no stress whatsoever. I, I'm, 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 a, I'm sorry, Rob, but I'm, I'm a big fan of farming in the UK, right? And I'm, I'm a big fan of farmers and what they do and the hard work that these guys put into what they do. But people that use an excuse that farming is better or, or, or for some reason that basically what you know harvesting animals from the wild is wrong and yeah. that farming is right that that's not an excuse that's not an argument sure. to have. it's not an argument it's just not an argument yeah it's not an argument uh, and and so so what for people obviously what we're doing now talking about it trying to trying to put that education through in the right way what what other things get done to try and educate because I mean I, I've, I've got a lot of like vegan friends and and I would say that a lot of them have more of a problem with the the wild harvest, the shooting, than they do. Uh, a, a, a lot of them I've spoken to, at least, than than kind of good farming. Like forget bad farming, because like there's there's a good and bad for everything. There's a good yeah. and bad hunter, you know. Yeah. There's, there's people that aren't as ethical, but um, I'm, I'm glad to say not the majority, but. Um, I think I think I mean the education thing is a big thing. I mean it needs people need to be educated. I mean when we when we wrote you know the book that the, the, that you talked about at the beginning, you know the book was written. I wrote it in a way 
the educated people the people could read it I had my um, my wife's uh, uncle um, he was vegetarian for a long time and one of the reasons why he was vegetarian was because he couldn't be 100% certain about the provenance of the product that he was eating exactly and, and that, that's exactly <clears throat> the things that I get kind yeah. of spoken about but then they can't get Hold of the well, yeah, but you're going around and it's shooting, it's, and but it's, it's barbaric. Yeah, but so. we know the provenance of the product that we do. Absolutely, absolutely. So, 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 so <coughs> but he, I'll just say that he, 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 I say he's vegetarian for a long time. He only really started eating meat again when uh, I started going out with my wife and that because I can give him the provenance of everything that I was putting in front of him. Sure. On top of that, um, when I wrote the chapter on a harvest and deer management in the book, I gave it to him to read. Um, because as a if you like a vegetarian that basically started eating meat again um, I thought and he's, he's got very clear cut ideas about you know things so I gave him the book to read and uh, I said to him what, what did you think and he said he said great he said I, I thought I think it's very informative um, I think that you write it in a way that is educational yeah. he said you can tell your lecturer he said it's educational yeah, yeah. he says if anything he said as you're reading it you have questions which then get answered as, you're, as you carry on reading yeah. and it sort of explains everything and it, at the end of it it doesn't leave any more questions because it, so much of it is explained and he said and actually he said what you also do is build a case and, and you can understand because any reasonable person that reads that book can basically understand that there's a case to be built and he understands the case that the book is putting together and the education the book's putting I am not for basically making airy, flowery, you know, putting things together and making it look rosy. Yeah, the yeah, book yeah. is the facts. The book, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, and we will go into the book in, in a bit. We are kind of coming up to the hour mark, but I just, I think one of the things that I really did want to get in, into this is the, you know, because education is available to all, but it's only going to be picked up by people that have maybe got an interest in that subject to begin with. So if you're not an anti-hunter or you're not someone that sort of sits on the fence, you're someone that's a little bit interested, you'd pick up a book, you'd go on maybe the deer stalking certificate and, and, and you'd, you'd get you'd get more information. But if but, you're anti don't, don't you how, think, how, do, how do we educate the people? No, but don't you, say, think, don't you think that we live in a society now where we have, educa- education, we have um, education and information so at our fingertips I mean the amount of times right you see people right they'll you're see something you're Google it if you're interested and, you know, no no you're not I, see sort of I don't think you do I, I think that you Google it you Google everything because basically you'll see something on television what are they talking what's he on about boom straight straight yeah. on the Google and have a look what it is I try to understand what it is that they've just spoken about or the, the thing that you've just heard about you, you, you get an interest if anybody gets an interest into anything right, or anything hears about something that they've never heard about before I mean the news will be talking about something right, and they'll be talking about something from somewhere you've never heard of before you Google it you'll have yeah. a look at it that ability was never open to us as kids nah. you and me right? we had to go and look at a book so we had to be really interested to put ourselves out to go into a library and try and find the book on it. Yeah. Now it's at our fingertips. That but knowledge. I think there's quite a lot of information, <coughs> and I think you can always find the arguments that you're probably, like I said, if you're interested in it and you've got, uh, yeah, actually, I think this could be a good thing. When you Google something, you're going to find the good in it. Now, yeah. if you Google things about hunting and anti-hunting websites, you'll you'll get all of the stuff that. Yeah, it might be facts. Yeah, but then that, that's that, as an intelligent as an intelligent person, you basically sift that. Yeah, I mean, it's like we we tell our kids, you know, our kids basically start looking up ingredients and bits and pieces for for lessons or for projects they have to do. 
Yeah. And yeah, a lot of the time I'd usually tell them, you've got to be careful because you've got to sift through the rubbish on the internet because there's a lot of rubbish on yeah. there. Uh, you know, and, and you know, things like Wikipedia where you've got people that can add anything to it. Yeah, and it might not necessarily be yeah. right. Yeah, it, it doesn't explain or, or, it. or even things that are, are facts, <coughs> but they're, they're, you know, facts because, or you know, statistics because they're taken from surveys and whatever. Doesn't make it not a fact, but you go and have to then say, well, what was your audience? Yeah. Because that can greatly, you know, and, that, and that's what I mean. It's like, well, I'm trying to, when I speak to people that are, that are anti-hunting or don't don't think, yeah, no, that's not that, not for me. I think it's a bit barbaric. And you try and say, it's, it's not, it, it, it's not. You know, I'm sort of, rather than weighing in with the, the hard, it's not, it's not, it's not, and have to listen to their, yeah, it is, it is, it is. Trying to find that level ground is like, well, yeah, where, where do you do that? Where do you where do you start? How how would you sell your book to an anti? How would you sell uh, Basque to an anti <coughs> to someone that says shooting and conservation can't or don't belong together? Yeah, I know we're not going to get everybody. We're not going to get everybody, but I'd, I'd like to think like after an hour of, of I listening, think, people well, most, most understand of, it. But. Most of the stuff that basically we've been talking about. I mean, you know, when we we've just heard about the deer and basically about you know the harvest of individual of pheasants and stuff like that and the farming side of it you know and basically what happens there you know any any logical person that you know when, it, when you want to understand something you look at the pros and cons you, you say okay well this is this is you know what happens here this is what happens here reasonable person look at both of them and go okay well you know you choose the one you like yeah and you think well I accept this mm. and I, this is going to happen but this is also you know reasonable it's not any people who are completely emotional about it and basically will can not see further than their point of view, that's wrong. I'm sorry, people. Yeah. You, you know, to, as an intelligent person, like you need to understand everything and understand it, and then make your mind up as to whether you like it or not. Yeah. Not just take a biased opinion that everybody else has got around you, right, and not listen to anything else. In this country, right, we have never ever been as interested in the provenance of our products and food, right, as we are now. Why? Because we had the horse meat scandal, yeah, yeah, <clears throat> and people wanted to know basically everywhere where their meat comes from and how it's produced and all that sort of stuff, yeah. So we want to understand it. We are also a country of foodies in this country, yeah. I would say basically sort of eighty percent of the people in this country are foodies, and they're foodies on two levels. They're foodies on the level where they love to cook and love to know about ingredients and want to produce stuff and have friends around all that sort of thing. They're foodies on the second level where they love to go out and eat. And they love to basically, you know, if there's something special on the menu that's got a name on it, they want to know all about where it's come from, all that sort of stuff. On the other hand, right, the, the 20 other 20% that we've got in this country are what we call refuelers. Yeah, people that basically have no interest in food whatsoever. They just see it as something that they do to eat, to stay alive. They, they can think of 10,000 things better to do than sit at a table and eat something. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's, um, that, that's, that's a sad set of things. But before, that, was not, that number used to be higher. Yeah, a lot higher. Yeah. And now it's not. Now it's, you know, somebody said to me the other day, what do you think, you know, um, about, you know, the UK now or London now, you know, being sort of, like, you know, possibly the gastronomical, gastronomical centre of, of, you know, the world. If you read the book at the beginning of the book, right, I say that, you know, when I was at college. Yeah, multicultural. Back in 1988, yeah. right, we were doing that. You know, one of my icons is Cliff Floyd. Yeah. yeah. And Keith Floyd basically did so much to open up basically barriers and doors and, and opens people's imagination about ingredients and food all around the world you know but, but he did it he did it honestly yeah he wasn't basically set up beautifully and nothing went wrong things went wrong 
you know, food was basically, it, some things didn't turn out right, but he had an explanation for it. But he told you the prominence of every single thing that he was basically putting in front of you. Absolutely. And he explained it where it came from. And he had fun doing it. Phenomenal character. Great bloke on telly. I, I had the pleasure of speaking to him twice, yeah. Oh, and really? Lovely, lovely man. Lovely wow. man. Yeah, really. And one of, one really one of my idols. Yeah. Uh, same as <clears throat> um, Paul Gaylor. Yeah, yeah, Paul Gaylor's another one. I mean, Paul, yeah, phenomenal chef, right? And basically, again... Prominence, interesting, background, understanding, yeah, great. And then, obviously, Michel Roux and uh, and his brother. Yeah, basically, it's a Roux brothers on television, right? We're basically working on, uh, on uh, what was it, the Good Food Show? I think yeah. it was, basically. The Michel Roux's going to do a recipe <coughs> in your next book. Yeah. Cool. Oh, his son, Michel Roux Jr., uh, yeah. Basically, so basically, they're, they're, you know, his, his dad and his uncle, you know, used to be on the Good Food Show, and, they, and again, those guys were, you know, they, they were they were phenomenal. And Anton Mosserman, I mean, I could go. The list is endless, but really, for me, Keith Floyd was the guy that basically done it and, and he, he brought that interest. But he 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 educated people. He he told them about different things and where they come from, and that's what we tried to do in the book. We tried to educate people to read it. I mean, the book is. But we have, have we mentioned the name of the book? We haven't even we mentioned have, that. I, I, to be honest, when I can, when I, when I can say something, I was going to say, you know, we, we've spoken quite a lot about deer, yeah. about the management of deer. Um, and and, and let, let's say, okay, so the people listening are, yeah, all right, that, that sounds like, okay, I can get on board with that. Let's talk about venison because, because venison's deer meat. That, that's that's yeah. one, once it's been in, in, in food processing and, and it's a, food consumable products it's venison so the book's called venison the game larder um and i, I believe it's one of three books two still yep. to come two still come we're working on a second one now steve and i are hard at work on that one so um tell us a little bit about the book and then then i'll, I'll go in with some, some questions and, and uh, well i mean I, I think to tell you the truth i mean i, I think i mean we, we've said everything there is today about the book i mean the book was written basically we, we spent eight years together working on that book Right. Uh, eight years basically out stalking um, out in the country so not always stalking not always with a gun just taking pictures yeah. um, and on they are states. phenomenal pictures um, yeah. I was saying to you you know before before we started recording you know it's in my living room as one of probably four or five books that are in my living room the rest are upstairs in the spare bedroom hundreds of cookbooks and it, because it is a coffee table book it is um, I think I think as much as it's a recipe book, there's a lot of recipes in there from you. There's a lot of recipes in there from some amazing guest chefs. Um, but it's, it's an education tool. There's a lot of how-tos. Um, so th- th- there's a lot of people that be like, okay, so I, I would eat venison, but it's not as widely available. Or oh, if it, it was... You can get it at supermarkets now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll talk about that <coughs> as well in a minute because yeah. uh, a lot of that's... That, that, that's not UK venison is it so uh, no. we'll, talk, we'll talk about that in a minute <laughs> yeah. but um, it, it, you know people that say oh yeah but the, the venison in supermarkets maybe meatballs or, or whatever so you, you'll you say right okay well you can get to a game dealer and you can get a joint and this book's got these incredibly detailed step by step photos a lot of butchery there's actually because they're such good photographs and it's such good written explanation as to how to do it it's actually really easy it's actually yeah. really really easy yep. to say I can take a joint I can break it down yep. um, and, I, and I can cook these recipes and you've, you've got fantastic chefs from restaurants yep. yourself with some great recipes but I love it as an educational tool for a professional chef but also a, a home cook as well well it was written when I wrote the book it was written for you know anybody that wanted that's a foodie 
it was written for chefs yeah. it was written for students um, it was written for you know anyone that's a countryman mostly who's out there who stalks and basically likes the countryside um, it was written for all of them and actually I, I got chastised quite a few times by a few different publishers that basically looked at the book saying you're trying to please too many people you'll never do it <laughs> um, and, and I think we did I mean I, I think you know Steve Steve Steve's you know, he he's a complete artist. He's he's also uh, a, a fanatical about basically little things that sure. he, he he must have or must do, and and he's as fanatical about that as I am about basically the, the you know the cooking shots and some of the some of the shots outside. You know, because obviously Steve's looking at it from a photography point of view. I look at it from you know I want it to be right. I want the the, the I want the people to understand what the photograph is showing. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, he he is a stickler for that sort of stuff. And, and Annie, Annie, who was the designer in the book, I mean, she's the same. She's an absolute sticker for it. And Merlin Unwin did a great job of putting it together. You know, that, I think Merlin Unwin, well, at the beginning when we first talked about the book, I thought they they thought it was going to be good, but I don't think they thought it was going to be as good as we, you know, yeah. put it together as. And it, I mean, <clears throat> venison as an ingredient has, has been written. There's been dedicated game and and, and deer books, uh, venison books before, but. <clears throat> I've spoken to people that have, have indeed written those books and said, yeah, Jose's book is the book I wish I wrote. Thank you. <laughs> but it, it took you eight years to do that. So eight years. It really was a labour of love, oh, yeah. a, a relationship between you and Steve and oh, an yeah. understanding to, to get it done. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, why did it take eight years to do? Because that's not by any, any means the, the standard sort of... No, you know, no, yeah. I mean, I, there's some TV chefs that push out a book in six months. There's some that will take a year or so to do. Well, I, I'm, eight years is a hell of a long time. I suppose both Steve and I are lucky that we're friends. I mean, and the fact that basically Steve, when I first met Steve, um, he said to me, you know, he, he watched me do a game seminar at the college, um, which game seminars we still do every year. And um, he so, said. So, so, so let's, what, what what are they? Should we should we talk about well, that now or, or, or later? No, talk about now. I mean, talk I mean the ga- game seminars are um, basically what I do is since I started working at the college, which is probably about nearly eleven years ago now. Um, I came from industry. Obviously, I, I worked out in industry, quite a few places in industry, and uh, I became to be a chef lecturer. And one of my things was game that I loved with game. Obviously, I've harvested game. I've, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. So basically, I wanted to bring it to the table, but I wanted chefs to understand it, and I, I found that a lot of chefs didn't really understand it, or they used old recipes, yeah, that were a bit unforgiving to, to a lot of the modern game we have nowadays. Yeah. So I started, I wanted to put together this a seminar where I could educate chefs about game and about its background, its provenance, yeah, portioning-wise, butchery, what it can be used for, how it can be cooked, different parts of it. And I started off by speaking to a few people at the Contrad Alliance and, you know, sort of having a chat with them about putting doing some stuff. I don't think they took me very seriously at the beginning because obviously, you know, a person called Jose Luis Suto writing an email to the Countryside Alliance and they're probably looking at it going, who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not until I, I, I met the guys from their PR company that they sort of got me on the phone and they said, oh, you know, he's a cockney. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they, you know, after that we started doing some work together. And then I started doing some work with BASC, and I'm now I'm the food ambassador for BASC, which is a great honour for me. Uh, me and Mike Robinson are both the food ambassadors for those, um, and we do a lot of work basically to educating people. And then in, in the seminars, what we did is we <clears throat> I worked together with a company that was UK Game, um, which was one of the major game dealers in the UK that basically sold to all the supermarkets. And uh, Morris Bond, who was the the director of UK Game, um, helped me, and we got 
one of each species of um, feathered game, uh, hare, rabbit, yeah, and we had them all out on the table and we would basically have loads of these chefs come in and basically we would do a seminar, a demonstration on basically talking about each of the individual animals, their background, where they live, how they eat, um, what they are, their classifications, their preparation, everything. And then we'd do a butchery demonstration on that. Then we'd have a meal downstairs in the restaurant, which is basically a three-course meal, including game. And then we'd come back upstairs and again, I'd have one of each of the deer species um, hanging and we'd basically talk about each so of the six individual... whole... <coughs> whole carcasses. Whole carcasses. Yeah. And then we talk about each individual carcass. We talk about the harvest of those carcasses, how they're harvested, what happens. Uh, we talk about the grolicking, the, the bleeding. We talk about everything to do with those carcasses. Um, and it, you know, all of the natural history, the background of the carcass, right down to the antler formation, everything. And then I would skin one and I break it down into all of the primals and then the individual cuts showing how much money can be made or the cost implications of basically buying whole carcass as opposed to basically um, you know individual joints individual joints are much more expensive so were, they, were these before the book these seminars before yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're still doing them now still doing them now yeah still doing basically I do about um, externally I do two a year uh, where we have basically people come into about 65 people come on each one uh, chefs, countrymen, you know, people who are foodies, anybody who basically is interested in comes on. Um, if, they, if anybody's interested, I mean, if you go to Westminster Kingsway College and, you know, they, they, uh, what happens now this time, we haven't uh, announced the dates for next year, but normally it's in, one's in November and one's in January. Yeah. Um, and then what we do is we, uh, we put everybody onto a mailing list and then we basically send out when the dates come up. And is it just for chefs or... No, anybody. 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 So if there's any foodies listening that anybody. are like, do you know what? Yeah, I would like to anybody. find out a little bit more. Anybody. So, and yeah, and basically it's included, there's a three-course meal included in the, in the actual thing as well. Blinded. But it's um, but we did that. Steve and I met at one of those because um, oh, okay. a good friend of mine is uh, Phil Vickery, the chef. Yeah. And uh, he... Um, him and I have been good friends because he he, he likes a lot of game as well and he, he does that. So we um, became friends through through uh, um, uh, 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 through Steve uh, through basically another Steve. Sorry, a guy called Stephen Paul who's another good friend of mine. And uh, I, I judged the Quality Food Awards um, for many many years, and now I'm a chair on the Quality Food Awards. And Stephen Paul was a a chair on the Quality Food Awards way before I started doing it. And he's a food developer, worked for loads of great big companies, Northern Foods, you know, really good chef, very good development chef. And he knew Phil and they worked together. And he said, look, you know, my friend Phil does all this sort of stuff. He loves game as well. He said, like, can I put you in contact with him? So yeah, no worries. So we got, we got contact, got friendly with Phil. Phil came to one of the seminars at the college um, and we became quite good mates. And then he ran me up one day and he said to me, I've got a friend of mine who's a photographer who's done a lot of my books. And his son wants to go to catering college. He said, I've told him to come and see you. He said, do you mind if I give him your number? I said, no, no, by all means. So I gave him my number, started chatting to Steve. I had a game seminar coming up. So I invited Steve to come on the game seminar. And he came with his son. And afterwards, he pulled me to one side and he went, you know what, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I went, well, yeah, but... I Only as I, much as most chefs <laughs> Yeah, well, but I wouldn't know how to put it together. He went, your knowledge is, is massive. He said, like, you know, you should really think about doing it. And I said, well, I've done it, I've done it. Which is great, because he's yeah. one of the biggest food photographers oh, yeah. in the country. Yeah. So he's not just saying this as someone that says, no. oh, I think you should have, I think you should I, have a book. Steve's, <laughs> Steve's done loads of, loads of celebrities. I mean, you know, Burton Race, um, obviously Phil Vickery, he's done a lot of Phil Vickery's books. Um, he's done loads of celebrity chef's books. John Jean Tanaka, yeah. loads. And so he said to me, I'd like to help you. 
I'd, I'd like to do it with you. It's you know, it's a project there. He and it just had come in just after Phil, or uh, they were just about to finish Britain the Cookbook, right. which I think is one of the most iconic cookbooks I've ever had. Right, it's a it's a, a celebration of British produce, right, and from from. Uh, field to table from producer to table it's, it's just everything tells a story of everything yeah. and Steve and Phil had spent uh, I think it was a year year and a half uh, going around and doing all the photography and the the guys who uh, the publishers who published the book um, would pay for all of the fo- studio photography and stuff they did but they only gave them sort of their money for their, their diesel if you like to basically drive around and so Steve did it again as a, a labour of, of love because yeah. he, he loved the book and they produced a fantastic book I mean if you, if you can get it get it it's a beautiful book the hardback copies yeah. we'll put links up in, yeah. the, in the podcast <coughs> great so book great book yeah and um, and so I looked at it you know, and I thought oh wow I'd love to do something like this I'd love to and Steve said well let's do it he said you know we've only got ourselves to answer to he said let's do it he said, you know, you put your knowledge forward, I'll put my photography knowledge forward, and let's go and do it. And we started working. We first started working on an all-encompassing book on game. And then we soon found out that, yeah, this ain't going to happen because it's too much. There's too yeah. much knowledge. For me, the amount of and what I wanted to put into it. you mean? Feathered, furred, and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I want, everything I wanted to empower into the book, we couldn't do in one book. So I said, let's split it up and do it, do it properly. And so we, we, we started to put venison together. Uh, we had a few publishers come and go um, who basically said, yeah, yeah, we would love to do it, you have to do it. And then they, they stifled what I wanted to do. They sort of like, oh, yeah, we want more recipes. We want to take this bit out, take that bit yeah, out. Yeah, let's and, put and, true, and I, I went, no, 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 no. Yeah, this isn't, yeah. Well, this is what I want to do. And now I say, the, the other comment of trying to please too many people came out and stuff like that. And I, no. and then we met Merlin and went through BASC. Yeah, um, okay. And um, BASC basically put us on, we had a meeting with them and they loved what we'd done and basically they said, yeah, we'll do it we'll do it with you um, Annie came on board Annie Tidyman who's basically our book designer she's one of the best book designers basically and she works for does a lot of design stuff and she basically worked doing the design with Merlin Unwin um, and they put the book together and yeah I mean the, the rest is history I mean it was eight, eight years of working together going out I mean we went from the Greylock estate up in uh, on the east coast of Scotland all the way down to East Sussex you know different estates seven Huge. different estates I think we did yeah. And uh, we spent a lot of time in each estate. But like I said, we we had no constraints because we had no money constraints because basically we were paying it all out of our own pocket. We'll never make all the money back that we spent on that book. No. You know, never, never in a million years we'll do that. I mean, uh, the book sold really well. It sold over, I think so, it sold over about 4,000 copies now. Wow. You know, it's done, it's done really, really well, if not more. Um, but everything was done with passion everything was done with thought the only, the only thing on there right that basically was a bit of a an idea and we did it and it worked is the front cover yeah <laughs> believe it or not um, because we, we 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 were really kicking ourselves with what we do the front cover and if, if you open the book once you open the first page uh, you look inside there's a beautiful picture of a door that's open and it says game larder on the, on the left hand side of the door and the door's open you're looking through an archway out onto the countryside and the countryside is is our game larder yeah, yeah and that's the way it's supposed to be and we wanted that as a front cover but when we took the, when Steve took the picture, it was a, uh, a landscape, not a portrait, right. so it didn't work. And so we had to try and find something else. So we went to Houghton Hall, and um, the deer lard is still there, the door's still there. And uh, Julian, the, the deer park manager, bought. I said, "Can I have a load of antlers?" And he just bought loads and loads of antlers over. And I got to got to work with a hammer and some nails and bits of string, and I tied all the antlers to the outside <laughs> of the door, which is what you can see so in the front projects, of the book. Yeah, which yeah. and then Steve took painstakingly took out all of the string and the the, the nails and everything that were around the door. Oh, wow. um, so that's how we came to basically the front of the door. And the next the next 
cover is going to be very similar to, to that. So the, ne- really, the uh, next book is the next book in the series. So that obviously, like you said, he was going to do one all-encompassing game, which is again, it's it's venison <coughs> yeah. and then feather. So all, all of the yeah. game birds and then fur. Which is, well, yeah, the yeah, last yeah. one, the last one's called rabbit hairs and others, or, or fur. Yeah, okay, yeah. It. And so, yeah, that include uh, the rabbit hair, the two hair species, and wobble. Are they going to take eight years? I mean, this next one, the next one we've just done, which we basically, we sort of piggybacked on the back of venison in the last two years that we did it. So basically we've been working, this is our third year working it. We've got one more year, so it'd be four years that Fantastic. we've been doing that. So there's been, between venison coming out and this one coming out, there will be, I think it's th- two I mean, and a half years, still two and three years. still an incredible amount of time to spend. I mean, I can't stress it enough, this... This is a coffee table book. It's not just a recipe book, and and you have got some fantastic chefs, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that, I'm, I'm lucky. For example, yeah, yeah I'm, some, I'm lucky some, that I've worked with some great guys, and I know. Yeah, and I know, and I know, yeah, a lot of the guys in there, you know, all the guys in there, all the chefs that are in there, are close personal friends of mine. Yeah, yeah. They, they're guys that I've known. I've worked with them. Tom. I don't know as well. I've worked with him at, um, at Chatsworth, um, but all the other guys I know really well. And Perfect. in the next book, yeah, we've got another load of great guys that I have some of them I know really 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 well and some of them are just friends or acquaintances that I've made on basically through my job because basically my job you know Westminster Kingsway College is you know is one of the best catering colleges in the UK you know and and you know we did we work with these guys all the time and, and you know at some point they'll we come into contact with them they come in at the college or, you know I'll, when I'm out doing cookery demonstrations I'll work with them outside you know so yeah we're good we're lucky Smashing. enough that. well that's great I mean we're at an hour and 25 minutes which is fantastic <laughs> I can speak to you all day we haven't even spoken about things like obviously we know that there's an next book and it's all about feathers speaking of feathers you're a falconer you're, yeah. you're a huge I mean I, I think it's come across that as, as well as a, as a as a conservationist you're also just genuinely a, an animal lover you've got dogs and ferrets and, and all sorts I've got of everything over got how, zoo. Many, how, how many birds of prey do you have we at have at home now I think we've got about 60 um, I, I, I must admit that I'm not a hoarder of, bird, of birds of prey my wife has a business so I, but my yeah. wife has a business CJ's birds of prey Fantastic. and uh, she does falconry space and you know TV work um, all that sort of stuff basically corporate work all, all around the country um, and all the big game fairs I mean like you know um, the game fair chats with um, you know Holcomb uh, down at the um, down in uh, East Sussex basically we, no, not East Sussex beg your pardon in Hampshire we do the uh, the New Forest Game Fair down right. there so we do she does fairs all over the country all big the big fairs and we do basically Falkland displays and then on top of that we've got basically all of our display team yeah which is she what she flies and then um, we have our hunting team which is basically the birds that I fly so I fly a goshawk and uh, I've got a peregrine and a harrishawk which and they're going to feature heavily in the next book uh, in the next book mainly the goshawk and the peregrines will basically feature in the next book um, so you'll use those to to, to hunt and to catch. hunt game yeah but, but I mean I, I have a female goshawk Sophia who basically she's my she's brilliant I mean I've, I've had her for now a little while uh, and she she flies phenomenally this well this is like medieval hunting oh yeah, yeah. well the, 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 fo- the goshawk the goshawk was known as the the cook's bird um, oh. originally in basically medieval times it was a bird that basically used to put food on the table for people wow. um, and the peregrine the, the word peregrine means wanderer um, okay, so cool. basically that's that's where the, where the word comes from but falconry itself I mean there's big bird in the world isn't it yeah, yeah. Well, my, I had my my little tiercel that I had. Um, we put a GPS transmitter on it once, and uh, we were flying it at grey partridges. And when I flushed the grey partridge, we measured its speed coming down ninety seven miles an hour at impact. Crazy. 
crazy. And it, um, it took a height of something like uh, 670 foot. It basically was going up. And they can go a lot higher than that. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that part of it, I mean, you know, falconry is one of the oldest ways of harvesting game in the world. Yeah, and it's it's a, it's one of these sports that really ties together so many cultures from around the world. I mean, it's argued about where it started. People started to say it started in China. People started to say it started in the Crusades. You know, but every country in the world has some connection to falconry. Some yeah. connection because yeah. basically all those countries have used birds of prey for hunting in some way or other for putting food on the table. Now it's a now I suppose it's more of a pastime than anything else. Yeah, it's a, it's an art. It's an yeah, art yeah, form yeah, of sure. understanding about the birds, trying to get into the bird's psyche and understand it from the bird's point of view, not humanizing them because that's something that you know pe- people who think they can train dogs right and don't train them very well. It's because they're thinking of the dog on the level of a human, right, and what the human's perception of what the dog's seeing. Whereas what they need to do is look at what the dog's seeing, right, from the dog's perception or basically the way it's looking at the human. And that's how you do with birds of prey. But with dogs, you know, you can use food, you can use food, and a dog will, after a while, you stop using food because a dog loves you because yeah. it, it basically, but I mean, you're part of the They're highly domesticated now, aren't they? Oh, they are. Birds but, of prey but, are still very you are, wild animals. Yeah, but you're, you're part, to, with a dog, you're part of a pack. Yeah. And, and, and you lead the pack. So the dog will basically follow, follow you to whatever you want to do. With a bird of prey, you and the bird of prey come to an understanding. Yeah, and that understanding at the beginning is basically you use food as a, and hunger as a vehicle to get you to where you want to go because basically that's what they understand. Yeah, once they, they're hungry, if they and you give you offer them food, and then if they eat the food and they see you're not going to hurt them, they think, oh, okay, this is all right. I'll carry on doing it because basically repetition is basically what they do. If, if something works, they do it again and again and again and again. Yeah, and that's how you start. And then after a while, then they start to see you're not going to hurt them, so they start to accept you and accept your, you know, you being around them and them being around you, and they accept the fact they'll come back to you because basically they have acceptance, you know, and and that that's the way it works. That's a very sort of like summed up way in which falconry works. I mean, it's yeah, a, no, I, can, I can spend complex. an hour and a half because <laughs> I, I know you quite a lot for your deer stuff and and the, the falconry stuff <clears> is something that I'd love well, to falconry spend another hour is my. Here my first passion that was the yeah first that's my first passion steer stalking come next and obviously shooting's all you know shooting I've done as well on and off but I mean falconry falconry and deer stalking are now my two things that I, I do a heck of a lot of falconry probably a lot more than, than even deer stalking so, so where can people catch up with you I'm going to post um, all the details about the book well you got post, post where they can buy that and, yep. and, and everything like that um, well I'm on Twitter I mean basically uh, what wild food boy at Wild Food Boy. At Wild and Food Boy. The book also has a Twitter account which basically is for people to follow sort of our travelling through as we're doing stuff. Oh, nice. And that's uh, that's at the game ladder. Um, and at the game ladder basically for all three books, it's just basically following our stories, it unfolds and things that we do. Wherever we go anywhere we try and tweet. We also retweet loads of other stuff, but yeah, you know, we try to tweet what we're doing so people can see as the book's been put together. Um, and uh, so basically yeah, at the game ladder is the other one um, and yeah at Westminster College I mean Westminster College is basically where I work um, that's my full time job and uh, yeah if, they, if people are interested in game seminars or interested in basically anything like that then yeah that's where to find me all the details are there and I will put those in the, if you're listening through Acast then those details will already be flashing up on your your listening device your mobile your tablet your desktop uh, but they'll also be on my website as well so Jose buddy thank you so much I could easily spend another hour and a half talking about the bird <laughs> we'll have but, to do another one Mike <laughs> but yeah maybe maybe we will and and you know I'm, I, there's going to be a lot of people out there that aren't foodies there's going to be a lot of people out there that aren't aren't sort of interested in, in hunting or, or whatever this is a, a platform for talking to normal guys and you're, you're not a celebrity chef you're a guy that 
was was cooking in a college and a, and a, and a very 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 well respected photographer went you've got it and you need to do a book and it's it's probably why well, it is the best book on the subject it's a real like I said it's a real tool um, well, I'm, as well as a recipe book and I'm, I'm privileged to, to know you and uh, I've had you take me out there stalking and I just thought actually you know this is going to be even if you're not interested in food you're not interested in hunting you're someone like my brother or my mother which you know they, 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 they're never going to go and get into it hopefully it's an educational tool to, to say actually you know hunting's not all bad if anything it, it's, it's needed it's needed and this yep. is why so yeah I think you've you smashed that one out for us thank you very much I try to no. be as unbiased as I can no, <laughs> it's no. really difficult because <coughs> I, as a foodie I, I love the products I think you know deer uh, venison it's, they all taste individually unique and, and different and, and they're, they're fantastically sustainable products that I just think in this country we, we produce that naturally um, some of the best in the world yeah it no, needs to be celebrated more because you know we're, that that will relieve some of the the tensions that that are on farmers and and like you've already said that they they have a really tough job and a job that you can only respect and uh, if we can alleviate some of that pressure um, and, and eat more game no we should we should do i mean i say with me i mean just in closing what i'd like to say is basically you know I, the book i wrote is is basically a, a, a book that belongs basically to, to Steve as much as it does to me because yeah, basically uh, it was a labour of love between the both of us but I've also got to basically thank my wife because my wife basically allowed me to go out every weekend <laughs> yeah, it was for a, eight years for eight years it was a great excuse and now I haven't got one yeah, <laughs> but no it's my wife Charlotte I mean and, and my son Luis I mean like you know they my, my little one he's, he's coming up to basically be eight he'll be eight tomorrow actually Oh, is he? Uh, yeah, he's eight tomorrow. So, and he and he's he's great. You know, he comes out, he wants to learn everything that Daddy's doing, and he understands everything about what we're trying to t- explain to him, right? And he's a very, very well. He's a big eight year old. Put it this way, we've gone on eighteen, and uh, yeah, without them, you know, I, I would without their support, I wouldn't have been able to basically put together what I put together. Um, but thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on there, and basically, I hope people enjoy it. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. again welcome back thank you very much um what did you think of that um hello sorry the dog's having a little wander around excuse the background noise uh, he's just coming and sitting at my feet bless him um so yeah uh, back back to it back to it professional um what did you think uh, I, I really really enjoyed having that conversation obviously fully aware it's a different sort of podcast i think to to what I normally do I, I even normally interview people that I might know a little bit I might not know anything about them at all they might be complete strangers obviously I, I know Jose um, and and we spoke a little bit about him uh, his personal life I suppose um, his upbringing and stuff but obviously the main point of that was uh, as an education I suppose it was um, it, it, I thought it'd be interesting and please do tell me if I was wrong um, I thought it'd be interesting to have someone talk about something that they know a lot about and um, you know I know a little bit about it but I don't think that was the point really I think the point was to have someone that does know something about something and ask them questions um, even if I knew the answers try and ask some questions from a, a non-biased standpoint as well and um, 
but yeah it'd be nice to to get more people on i think that have got something to say and possibly some way of educating you guys on something that you might not know as much about or anything about um it introduces us to new new people and new things and i think that can only be a good thing but let me know you know did you learn anything did it change your mind or perception on anything um you know obviously it is a controversial subject um and i think a huge part of that controversy is people don't understand it don't understand um why we why we hunt um and, and why we stalk deer um or, or why we even eat meat so it you know we're go- i'm gonna get some feedback on this i'm sure good and bad um be nice about it you know i'm not telling anyone how to live their life please don't tell me how to live mine or condemn people for for hunting or for for eating meat for that matter um just yeah but i do want to have your feedback the good and the bad i do want to have your honest opinions without you being sort of uppity about things if you can help it um i'll read them out next week i think that would be quite a good one um you you can do that by tweeting me is probably the best way um go on to my twitter which is at that mr christ um christopher wouldn't fit so it's just at that mr christ which christ is spelt christ um but yeah i want to want to say a big thank you um to rob for putting the podcast together as usual but i've been getting loads and loads of feedback on on the song so um a huge thank you to to david woodcock go and go on my website go on the acast links um on the acast app and, and you'll be able to go to where you can buy his album his second album's coming out which is why he only wrote the song and did the music for it and we actually got a guy called paul um to to do the vocal and do the singing on on the track because david's record label was was quite likely not going to let him um do do the vocal himself but paul came in and smashed it and and did a really really good job and was probably better for that particular track um than david anyway so uh, it worked out nicely and uh, and we recorded it at joe lamb's london road recording studios in south end so if you're uh, a music talent and you want some good uh recording studios that are cost effective then i can highly recommend them they've got everything that you're going to need and joe's brilliant at putting together the tracks and mastering them he can do all that for you um yeah i've been getting loads of good feedback that it's a really original song um it for me it's it sounds really essex which is where i'm from and and it's what i love so yeah um i don't know who's on next week's show because i fucked up with uh with deleting matt's episode and it's sort of put my order and everything out of whack so uh i can't say who's on next week's show but what i thought i'd do was i'd do a little sort of for people that this might be their first episode if you did like it this has been a bit of a different episode um you know it was a more of an educational tool um and interview rather than the general conversations that i have with people that might be strangers or i might only know a little bit about them and we just have a general conversation nice and casual like um if if you have liked this episode it is episode seven i, I highly recommend any one of the other six um depending on what you're looking for um episodes one uh with Alla Drixner, we we talked to a girl who came over to this country at 14 years old um, didn't know the didn't know the language came over on her own to study uh, worked her way up into university did really well there but at 16 years old sank really powerful and emotional and and quite 
frankly horrific happened to to her and her family and and she goes into it there and she what I didn't know about it when I sat down to have the chat with her so as she was as you're hearing it that's how I heard it and um it was quite hard to keep my composure whilst having a chat to her um, and trying to make a, a good podcast because it was emotional um equally as much Marcus on episode three he he does a great um talk on on his world in barbecuing and uh also he's he's a scientist he's a geologist so we talk a little bit about that but he then throws in some pretty powerful stuff uh with his um experiences on child bereavement so you know they're they're two pretty powerful ones um but at the other end of the spectrum i had a real good laugh with a girl called sammy she's um a a pretty much a vegan hippie into crystal healing um very spiritual yoga complete opposite ends to to who i am as a person and we, we had a really good laugh we we really had a giggle um to the point where we actually we did a second episode and we got a bit more serious and we spoke about um her her rape um so yeah first episode bit light-hearted and fun is uh, episode four and episode five was her experience um with obviously the serious subject of of rape but then we we ended that one with a experience as working on a cannabis plantation so a lot of variety there and it, it was just amazing i've spoken in episode two to a guy who at 16 years old made a million quid uh set up a t-shirt business and you know went from nothing to a something and uh and that, that was a really interesting one and, and i got a lot of love for that a lot of people um was was quite inspired by that um, which surprised me because it was a it, it was probably going out to a slightly different audience um, to to the other ones that I, I'd done. So yeah, it, there's variety in the show, but I want there to be more. So I think what I'm getting at is share it, share it about. The more people listen to it, the more chances I'm going to get to interview more people. If that makes sense, because someone will go, yeah, if anyone can be on it, my story would fit on that, and I'd be happy to tell that. Or you know, oh my friend, she's got a brilliant story, or he's had an amazing experience, and uh, and it should be shared. I will travel. I will go pretty much anywhere in the UK, and I'll go and meet people and have a face to face conversation, and I'll bring it to you. So, if you want to see a certain someone or a certain demographic, email me, tweet me, tweet me, and tag them in it so that it's brought to their attention. Whatever you want. Um, yeah let us know it's a it's a sort of open show um i don't hold prejudice i don't get people on here that um always agree with what i agree with i'm i'm happy to get people like sammy she's got completely different views and and stuff as as i have and um yeah i'm happy to get people like that on here i don't want abusive people um you know let's have a civil conversation if we disagree let's do it in a civil way but yeah i'm happy to get anyone so it's your chance to play devil's advocate and pair me up with some some people that you think i can have a really good uh, conversation with on that note i'm gonna say goodbye because i didn't write any notes for the intro and the outro this week so i've been thrown a bit out of whack by um having a shite day if i'm honest and deleting matt's episode i feel incredibly guilty and bad about it and um it's yeah without notes it's quite hard to talk into a microphone and and not waffle on and i i sort of have for nearly 10 minutes now so 
I will see you later. All the links to social media and everything that you need are on the website, thatmrchristopher.com. Until next week, adios. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.